Hello, everybody. Here we go. Another episode of Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And as always, my faithful companion, sidekick, mentor, guru, Pierre Lebrun, at home in Toronto. How can, how, can I be your, how can I be your mentor when I'm younger than you? Anyway, keep going. <laughs> I always like when you interrupt me before I get to the important part, which is to introduce our first guest today and a very... Happy time it is to welcome Ray Ferraro to Two Man Advantage for the first time. Longtime NHLer, one of the great analysts in the game, and to top it all off, a former Atlanta Thrasher. And uh, that always makes uh, that always uh, ups the ante for me. So, uh, Ray, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you guys. Uh, at this time, uh, myself and my wife, Cami uh, Granado, we're trying to figure out how to put up this snowman thing light sort of deal. We're getting, we're getting our Christmas decorations going and you should see how smoothly that's going. So I'm glad to take a break. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like an inflatable one or is it one that you hang from pieces of your house or what's the, because I'm pretty handy myself. I can help. It's not inflatable. You, you basically put the, the body of the snowman over this, interior pole but you got to get it stretched down so you can tie it off on the bottom so it doesn't blow all over the yard and Ah. um that seems to be a little bit of an issue so here's what's going to happen i can guarantee you i'm stopped uh the process because i'm in talking to you guys by the time i get out cameo figured it out and um, (laughs) that's generally how things get done around here i I was gonna say my 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 wife stacy does pretty much does everything like that i can't even change a light bulb but I, I must say, since you mentioned uh, uh, your, your Hall of Fame wife, that was one of the most enjoyable stories I've ever written uh, before ESPN fired me, was, uh, <laughs> was your, wife's, uh, your wife's induction uh, into the Hall of Fame. Just, you know, not only because it was deserved, but also because of the significance of it and ever since then. But uh, that was fun. Now, I, I have to say, Ray is, a very, Ray is a very humble guy. And I know you introduced him as one of the top analysts uh, in the game which is true. I mean, every time I get stopped by someone, I think it's because they want to talk about my work, and they always talk about Bobby McIlroy for hour or Dregs or James Dudley. <laughs> but people forget about Ray's career, not just you know part of, part of some fun Hartford teams and Islander teams. I, I went back and looked at the stats again the other day. Ray Ferraro scored 108 goals in 72 games in Brandon in 83-84. 100 and eight goals in 72 games in the dub. Like, that is ridiculous. Honest to goodness. Well, okay, uh, so there's... You remember the old uh, the old uh, game on Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other? <laughs> so there's been three players in major junior history that have scored 100 goals in a season. Me, Guy Lafleur, and Mario Lemieux. And so one of these is not like the other. That would be the one guy from the Western League. Wow. Well, I'm just, it, it was an I'm amazing just, year. <laughs> sure was. It sure was. Um, and, and so, and so I, I would, you know, you're right though. I, I'm sure we all, you know, we have a younger self and of course today's fans wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't know me as a player. And I'm, I'm always, I always get a giggle when somebody will tweet something at me. And they'll say, hey, I just looked up your stats. Like, it's the first time they realized I was a player. <laughs> you know what? It, it's, like, it's, like, it's like all the young people in their teens and 20s 
when they watched the Osbournes reality show, later realized in life Ozzy Osbourne really was a heavy metal star. Like, like <laughs> right. that wasn't the show that put him on the map. <laughs> right. Well, well, Ray, Ray, let me ask you that because I think that I mean it's fascinating because there is a generation of hockey fans who who know you uh, only through, you know, watching you on television, watching you on panels, doing games. Uh, you have your own podcast. Was there a moment where you're like, oh my god, there are people who who have no idea that I actually played in the NHL, and you know, was it, what's that like to come to that realization that I'm not saying you're old, but <laughs> that they're <laughs> You know, you've sort of evolved into this. For for a lot of fans, you're a TV guy. That's who you are. Yeah. Well, where I noticed it was, you know, as as you guys know, like I'll get into a little bit of back and forth with people on Twitter, and <laughs> it, it 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 really struck me how many people would would make a comment about how much I sucked as a player, and <laughs> look, and and so. I started to just copy and paste my hockey DB page and just send it to them in a direct message. And so I don't even write anything with it. And it's amazing how many people you never hear back from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so I'm, I'm proud of my career. What's crazy about it is, so I played for 18 years and this is my 16th year as a broadcaster. And I was saying to Cam, to Cammy at the start of the year, I can't believe I've, I've almost done this as long as I played. And so I, I don't, I'm not even at all surprised anymore that fewer and fewer people might even have any reference point that I scored 400 goals, that mm-hmm. I played 1200 games, you know, like it, to them, it's just, that must be ancient history. I retired in 02. And so for a, a lot of people that love the game and watch the game, guys, my vintage, they, they wouldn't know the only, a lot of them, I think they, you know, like we see the guys going into the hall of fame. And in most cases, the guys are our age. And we, right. and for, for a lot of people, they look and go, oh, man, those old guys. Yeah, oh, yeah, I remember that guy. You know, like, oh, yeah, Marty. They, they look at Marty Brodeur, and they think Marty's really old because he's <laughs> been true. retired for, for a while. And, and we're like, yeah, right. but I remember when Marty came up and he was wearing number 29. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, and I'm, I'm, uh, Marty was born a month after me, so that one hit <laughs> for sure. Um, now, you know, I, I think about the way the game is played today and you get to sit right down at, uh, or stand right down at yeah. ice level and, and see it like really no one else has time to see it because the guys on the bench and the coaches are focused on specific parts of the game, but you're watching all of it. And I often think of guys like you that, that were offensively gifted in your playing era, Ray, um, how you would fit in today because I, I, I really I had this discussion with Paul Correa when he went in the hall but I got to think today's game would fit you even even more so than than when you play now I know the 80s were, were fairly wide open but at the end of the day smallish players still had to fear for their lives the way the game was played when when you were in and and I think the game is different today and I, and I think that I mean I I think your point total adjusted for where you were with your peers. I, I think your point totals would have been even higher in today's game. It's funny you bring that up now. And you mentioned Paul Korea. I was just in Anaheim and uh, did the Leafs game down there last week. And they had a video up uh, in the pregame of, you know, um, you know, I, I guess of my era of, you know, big hits and plays. And I said to Chris Cuthbert, who was doing the game, how the hell did I survive that? <laughs> like, look at it. 
it, the game oh, was yeah. so different than today. And, and not only just the, the physicality, but also what the standard of officiating was at the time. The neutral zone used to be hand-to-hand combat to get from one blue line to the other. Mm-hmm. If I remember playing against Peter Stastny, and uh, just, you know, for those that don't know, just a, you know, an oh. amazing player, Hall of Fame player, and he was big and strong. And so Peter was in Quebec when he and his brothers defected and came to the Nordiques. I was in Hartford. And so we'd be rolling around the defensive zone, and, man, I can't handle Peter Stastny. He's too big, so i just grab onto his stick. And so I figured if there were if there were three hands on it, it probably wouldn't be as effective if just he was on it. So I'd grab it and skate around till the ref would yell, let it go. And so I'd let it go. And then we'd go three or four more strides and I'd grab it again. <laughs> it wasn't a penalty though. No, no. Right? And, and not to, so, I mean, not to mention the, 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 seriously, I mean, guys were taking each other's head off, especially at playoff time. Literally. If you go back in and front look of, at it. In front of the net, in front of the net, like I, I, almost never refer to the front of the net as he, Oh, he goes to the tough area because in my mind, going to the tough area meant going in there where Darian Hatcher was and he would cross check you 27 times and the referee would yell from the corner. That's enough. One of my favorite stories I tell about that was Larry Murphy, who wasn't known as a, you know, a real rough player, a Hall of Fame player, but not a, a rough player, but he was strong and big. And uh, one night we're in Pittsburgh and he's got a handful of my jersey. And so I'm, I'm yelling to the referee who's standing in the corner, that's holding. And Murph steps back and goes, yeah, and this is flashing. Boom, and he got me with a flash. And, he went, and this is cross-checking, too, and he gave me another one. And, but there's no penalty. Like, so yeah. I, I would love to have played in today because of the pace, because of the focus on creating plays. I would, I would have loved to do that. And where, you know, the player you mentioned, uh, Pierre, one of, you know, one of my favorites uh, that I got the chance to play with at a world, and I know one of your favorites when you watch. Mm-hmm. But yeah. could you imagine Paul Correa playing today? Oh my goodness! My, well, my, first of all, he like, he, he, he would have played longer to begin with because of the yeah. way that right. Rule Forty Eight has changed yeah. the game. But but not just that; just the free flowing through the neutral zone without having uh, someone water skiing behind you. I mean, it, it just would have been so different for him. Yeah. We used to so, practice. We used to practice holding up players. Like that was a practice drill. <laughs> you would literally practice interfering with other players. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so great. You mentioned Darian Hatcher, and so that's it's a it, it's a tiny stretch, but it's it's still a segue, and it's a great segue into, of course, sort of the news that has overwhelmed the hockey world over the last three weeks. I know Pierre, you wrote about it, and I will ask you again, probably in this podcast, how many days is it? Four coaches in seventeen days after not having one fired all last regular season. Um, but uh, certainly the last to fall, Todd McClellan, um, I think by I think for most people in hockey, uh, there's an understanding of ter- a really terrific coach and just couldn't get it done in Edmonton. But now out of semi-retirement, I know Ken Hitchcock was still consulting for the Dallas Stars after his one season turn there. But Ken Hitchcock returns 
to the NHL. Of course, he coached Darian Hatcher to a Stanley Cup in, in Dallas in 1999, but returns to his home in Edmonton um, to take over behind the bench of, of the Edmonton Oilers. And I, I guess I'm curious, Ray, what your, your first impressions were of that and maybe sort of broadening the, the lens on this a bit. When you see four coaches go in such a short period of time, uh, you know what's the message? What are we what are we looking at here in in terms of, um, you know, where the game is at and maybe what what lies behind this rash of of, of coaching changes just one quarter of the way through the season? Well, we'll start start with Hitch. I you know certainly it was no surprise that you know the pressure was ramped up in Edmonton. Uh, you know that eight two and one stretch that they had a couple of weeks ago. That seems like. 10 years ago, you know, like nobody can remember that. Um, they have, they've had a really difficult uh, start to the season. Um, you know, n- haven't played very well and given up a pile of goals of late. So the, the pressure was, was pretty clear. It was ramping up on Todd McClellan. Now I, I think Todd's an excellent coach. Um, you know, two years ago, they, they surprised everybody and get themselves to game seven um, of that second round playoff series when they lose out to Anaheim. Um, then last year's a train wreck, uh, for them and they're eight, nine and one this year and he gets fired. Like what it tells us is that the pressure on management from ownership, um, and the pressure on management or rather from management to coach is that there's so much invested in these teams. They're not waiting around. They're not like, I'm sure the Oilers are looking at their division and saying, mm-hmm. okay, our division stinks. <laughs> That's right. The Ducks, the, the Ducks have lost 150-man games already with no real relief in sight. Um, the Kings are in a, you know, the Kings all of a sudden are, they're in the mix for Jack Hughes. You know, yeah. they're not a playoff team. I think the Canucks are going to regress, even though uh, Travis Green has done a terrific job with an undermanned team here. Um, and they, they play hard. They score lots of goals. Unfortunately for them, they give up more. And so they're not a playoff team. So now you get down to four teams, right? San Jose and Calgary are a lock, I think, to make the playoffs. Now you've got Vegas and Edmonton, and you know Vegas just hasn't looked right, isn't right, and they get smoked last night in Calgary. So Hicks is known as a short-fix guy. Maybe he can um, help turn things around, tighten things up in Edmonton. Um, you know, it didn't work last year in Dallas at all. You know, you guys know that. Like, it just, it didn't work. They had, they had seven forwards guys that regressed in points under Ken Hitchcock. Seven of them. And yeah. so I would suspect, but they gave up 35 less goals than the year before. So we, we know where Hitchcock's focus is going to be. It's not going to be on producing offense. I would, you know, my initial thought is they'd probably separate McDavid and, um, and Dreisaitl, which I'm never a fan of because I, I just don't think they're good enough to handle that, like the team. You know, they need McDavid and Dreisaitl on the ice as much as they can, and that means on two different lines. Um, I think they'll tighten up defensively as much as they can, but they need better goaltending. And the underlying story here, guys, is that their team just isn't good enough. If you go back to 2010 and go through the, the Oilers drafting and go through the Oilers draft picks, you, you're going to be amazed at how many they don't have. Mm-hmm. from pretty high spots in the draft, not just first rounders. Go past the first round. Miss, 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 year after year after year. And, you know, it compounds upon itself, and pretty soon it's kind of surprised they're not in the playoffs. 
Pierre, let's, the interesting part, I think, and Ray touched on this, is that it, it, there are actually quite a few parallels between this Edmonton team and, and Dallas uh, a year ago. And, and Ray, you mentioned the, 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 the question on what to do with Connor McDavid and Leon Dreisaitl. Well, Ken Hitchcock wrestled with that all last year. What do you do with Alexander Radulov, Jamie Benn, and Tyler Sagan? Now, when they played together and when they were going, uh, I would argue they were as good a line as there was in the NHL a year ago. Um, but they the the depth scoring was was non-existent for that Dallas team and so at times Ken Hitchcock would break them up and he would have Radulov play maybe with Jason Spezza or Matthias Janmark or whatever whatever the permutations were and my sense is that he will face the same kind of dilemma with an Edmonton team that is equally and maybe even more so top heavy uh, because they don't have the the offense offense from the back end that they got from John Klingberg a year ago but Pierre, what do you, you know? Is there is this a good fit? Do you think for the Oilers? And 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 what are the what do you think the biggest challenge is for Ken Hitchcock going in there? Well, I mean, there's many. I mean, Ray touched on a lot of it, but it's a roster still with some glaring holes. They're top heavy uh, talent wise. Their number one goalie has lost his confidence. It seems like in Cam Talbot, so they're riding uh, Koskinen, uh, who was a good offseason signing, by the way, by Peter Shirelli, who's a GM that's absolutely now more than ever. Uh, in the spotlight, I think, in his marketplace yeah. because he's made the one move that his one major move that he has left other than the, than a pretty big trade in terms of his own future. Um, you know, I think they got to make the playoffs or else, you know, he'll be in danger with his job. But, um, you know, Ray mentioned it didn't, it didn't you know, the, the hitch effect didn't totally work in Dallas, but it certainly did in St. Louis for a few years when Doug Armstrong brought him there. And, and that's a Blues team that finally you know, got to a conference final and, and, and every year was a threat. And, and I thought Hitch had a big impact there, especially changing the habits of a lot of players who have been there a long time. But, you know, will that translate in Edmonton? I, I you know, I, I have no idea. But, I, you know, I've seen some commentary on Twitter about what this means for Connor McDavid. He wasn't, let's not confuse ourselves here. Ken Hitchcock wasn't brought in to change Connor McDavid. That's the one thing you know you got going right. In Edmonton, right. <laughs> he was he. Connor McDavid knows what he's doing. It's 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 trying to reach you know change the way the rest of this team plays and specifically with more structure and uh, probably less selfishness. And and believe me, you could tell from his opening comments on Tuesday that Hitchcock is going in there and he's not going to take any prisoners. And that's his style. It works for a short time frame, um, but certainly over the course of time, it, it, it tends to sometimes grate on players is my experience from talking to some players, yeah. but, but that's I, fine. I guess Pierre, if I can, if I can jump in Pierre, I guess the biggest question I have about is not about Ken's knowledge. I mean, we, any of us that have been around him all and had the opportunity to talk to him, you know, like as far as knowledge of the game, that's, I mean, that's not even a question. The problem becomes with that knowledge, what can you do with a roster that is so deeply flawed? Yeah. And so, you know, you mentioned that, you know, Peter Shirelli made the, the one movie could make, you know, without, without making a major trade. Um, their, their roster is chalk block full of holes. They came into the, they came into this season, their right wing, which to me stood out like a flashing neon sign was Ty Ratty, Kyler Yamamoto, Yessi Puyi and Zach Cassian. Yeah. Well, how do, how could in any world how does that work? 
You've got two kids that are just trying to learn the game. Um, a player in Ratty who had played like 50 games, although albeit some successfully with um, uh, with McDavid last year, and yeah. and then Cassian. Like I, the holes here are, I don't know if they're fixable by any coach. And we'll, we're going to find out. We'll, we're going to find out. But that's his biggest challenge. Yeah, it's, I, I feel you know the guy. I I feel sort of bad for Mike Yo. Mike Yo got fired by the St. Louis Blues, and almost instantly, the story is wiped off the map by Ken Hitchcock sort of coming out of nowhere to take over for Todd McClellan in Edmonton. But we sort of touched on it at the beginning. And Ray, I don't know if you had the experience during your career, but this is four coaches now dismissed in the last three weeks. What's a, how different is a dynamic when there's an in-season coaching change compared to when, you, you know, we, we are actually, we're going to talk to Brian McClellan in the second segment, but, you know, Barry Trotz goes off to the Islanders in the offseason after winning a cup. Todd Reardon comes in. I mean, you've got a coaching change, but the dynamics, dy- dynamic is obviously different when you do it in-season. I wonder, what's that do to a team when, you know, 20 games in or 22 games, all of a sudden there's a new guy behind the bench and, and, and all that goes with that. What's, what goes into play and whether it's Edmonton, St. Louis, LA or, or Chicago, what's, what's that dynamic and how is that different? Well, my first, uh, the first time I went through this, uh, Jack Evans was our coach in Hartford. And for a lot of us was the coach we grew up with and um, he was fired and Larry Plow came into coach. And what it does immediately is it takes everything for every player and dumps it upside down on the table because nobody knows what the new guy is thinking. Nobody knows who the new guy really likes. Larry Plow came in. He had meetings with all the players. He told me I was a fourth line guy and a power play guy. He'd been my coach in Binghamton in the American league. And so for me, I'm like, I'm screwed. Like this guy doesn't like me. He doesn't think I can play. And it took, I think I sat out, oh gosh, eight of the first 10 games, you know, and you're, you're like, well, weeks ago I was in good shape here. You know, we weren't winning, but the coach liked me and I played and now I'm not playing at all. And it, it took a while. And, you know, the coach, the new coach has to get his feet on the ground because he's going to like different players than the previous coach did. But he doesn't even know in a lot of cases, which player he's going to like, because as much as they've been paying attention, it's different when you're standing there. It's different than when you're at practice every day. And as it turned out to me, uh, for me, you know, I scored 40 goals the next year for Larry and he turned out, you know, I, I became far different than a power play guy. I played a long time and uh, very productively with Larry. But what happens immediately is everything is on the table. Like in Edmonton, for example, the only thing that isn't on the table is whether Connor McDavid's the best player, but right. the way they line up the lines, um, you know, does Dreisaitl go back to center? Do they change the defense pairs? Is he going to just um, throw Cam Talbot in the net and say, look, I don't care what happened before I got here. You're our guy. Go play. Because he's got no history with him. Everything changes. In St. Louis, you know, I would say they're, them and Pittsburgh have to be the two biggest disappointments in the first 22, 3, 4 games, wherever we're at uh, in the season. You know, they had a big off season. They signed a lot of guys. I thought too similar, you know, not very quick in Bozak and Perron and Maroon and O'Reilly, you know, not quick guys in a very fast game, but they were expected to be a hell of a lot better. 
So Craig Berube, who's been around there, maybe some guys think they know how they're going to fit, but maybe Berube just looks at things completely different than Mike Yo. And now that he's in charge, maybe everything changes under a, a guy that is a very, very popular coach, uh, Craig Berube. So it, the in-season coaching change is a bit of a crapshoot. It can go south, but immediately everybody is on high alert because uh, there's a new boss and nobody knows what the new boss thinks. Now, now Ray, you we, when we talked about St. Louis, your old Hartford Whalers uh, teammate Joel Quenville is uh, is – is on the sidelines, and as I like to say, the the most expensive unemployed unemployed coach in NHL history, which is uh, uh, which is des- deserved in terms of the salary, and uh, and we're going to get more and more of this. Todd McClellan now unemployed at three million, Joel Quenville at six million, Ale Vigno at four million. It's a whole new era for coaches, and and the the dynamics of what happens now when a team tries to hire those guys. But anyway, I'm sort of going off on a side tangent there. But uh, people were quick to connect Joel Quenville to St. Louis, and I, I know I don't I don't want to delve too closely uh, because I know you guys are buddies. So, but just in general, I don't personally don't see it as a fit. I I think that, and I haven't talked to Joel Quenville, but my impression from talking to other people is that I, I think Joel Quenville has the mindset right now to probably take the rest of the year off and, and sort of decompress and, 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 and get a fresh start. But who knows? I mean, it, I remember that that was Claude Julien's plan after a long, long, long successful tenure in Boston. Yeah. And then, uh, and then uh, of course, he took a job less than a week later with the Habs after Boston. But his plan was originally to uh, – and the reason it changed, of course, is that he just couldn't say no to the opportunity. So, I don't know. What, what's your sense of, of Joel in general? Uh, I'm obviously – much, much the same of you. Much the same as you, Pierre. I, my, you know, I talked to Joel, uh, sent him a text, and, you know, talked just really briefly uh, through text with him. But my sense is that – um, that a little time off is, is in order. Now, all of a sudden, bam, bam, there's a couple more jobs open. Maybe what was available wasn't so interesting, and maybe St. Louis becomes more interesting to him. My question would be, and you, and you touched on this, Pierre, is the, is the dollars involved now for the coaches? Um, can the Blues or will the Blues be willing to pay um, mm-hmm. that type of salary? Like, you know, Joel's at six million bucks. I mean, there's, there, you know, he's not going to come back and say, "Gee, I miss coaching so much. I should give back three million dollars." <laughs> like that's not, that's no, not no. And 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 the Blackhawks are well within their rights. And and I think, listen, I think the Blackhawks think so highly of Joel Quenville and his legacy that they'll be delicate with this. But they're not going to let another team come in and say, "Well, we're going to pay Joel two, and you guys can pay him four. I mean, that's yeah, that's, that's not, not gonna that's not how that's going to work, is it? Right, that's not but. <laughs> But it's important to remember that, uh, as per the NHL offset rules in in the bylaws, that uh, you know the Blackhawks do have final say uh, on how that plays out. So that so you're bang on. I mean, I think, I mean, to me, money shouldn't be a, a, a an object anyway when you're talking about the quality of a coach of Joel Quenville. But I'm just saying that is an interesting thing for everyone to consider when you consider his next gig. And and to that point, Pierre. So just a few years ago, Mike Babcock signed his. Uh, eight-year deal in Toronto for 50 million bucks, and it elevates coaches' salaries across across the National Hockey League. And now we see four coaches fired in three weeks, and there's financial ramifications. I 
going to pay that type of money or do they think it's necessary to pay that type of money or do some teams think they can hire somebody much younger, a Jeremy Colleton in Chicago and pay them less money. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that stuff's always interesting because there, there is a trend and teams get to the trend and then somebody changes the trend and they go in a different way. And if somebody is successful a different way, maybe coaches don't make as much money because I don't know about you, but if I fired a coach and I had to pay him $6 million and then watch Joel go to the Bears game the other night, I'd be, <laughs> be a little dollar. I'd be $6 million bucks to go, you know, to, to go tailgate. And so I, I would, I think, I think everything, well, everything all the time comes under scrutiny. At least it should. Right. If you're running a team, you should be paying attention to the dollars going out the door and whether you're spending them correctly or not. Um, it's just about time to let you go. And I'm, I'm wondering, have you looked outside? Is the snowman fully installed yet? Can, are you safe now to return to? Yeah. To, to, See, that, that's good strategy. Because if not, I'm good to stay for a few more minutes. If it's not put <laughs> up yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, you know what? It, it looks good. It's up. She's got the arms on the thing. But, oh. Uh, the boss is not connected, so I got to stay in here just a while longer. Okay. Well, I I did want to I, I wanted to circle back because it's it's one of my my favorite parts of uh, having ch- chatted with you about this in the in the past. But we were talking earlier on about your uh, you know your evolution uh, as a broadcaster and the fact that you've been doing it almost as long as you've been as you were a player. And for me, one of the great nights. At, from my vantage point was watching you interview your son before an NHL hockey game. And uh, mm-hmm. you don't get to do that unless you're old. So I, I don't want to break that to you, but uh, when I wonder when you think about that moment and maybe some of the, the, the highlights for you on, on this side of the game, what comes to mind for you? Well, I, had you not referenced the interview with Landon, um, I would have told you that's the, the single greatest thing I've done as a broadcaster. I was so proud that he's playing in the NHL and we always joked about it when he was a little kid. And I said, Hey, if I ever get into broadcasting, maybe I'll, um, you know, maybe I'll interview you. And he laughed. And I always told him the last question I was asked was, Hey, did you clean your room? And he said, you better not. He's like, you better, if that ever happens, you better not. I, I bailed on it. I was thinking about it, and I'm like, oh, it was his first game with Boston. I better, I'll just, I'll let this one go. So I just, I was so proud uh, of him um, and being able to do that. That would be number one. Number two would be um, uh, a couple of the World Junior Gold Medal games I've done. To see these kids so emotional and lay everything on the line. Is, and I'm standing between the benches, and the, and it's just different than an NHL game. The chaos, the emotion, the, um, you know, they're kids. It's awesome. I just, I just love it. And, and I guess so. Those would be like the highlights uh, uh, for me. You know, doing a, the Canada won a gold medal in 2015, and um, uh, the, the, the game was amazing. And there were seven million people that watched it you know, Canada's 33 million people. And I, and I just felt like that was really, really special and really kind of cool. But when I think about our job, like what we get to do 
and we get to watch hockey and we get to comment on it. And, um, you know, there are times when I go, man, the travel is just beating the crap out of me and it's hard, but what a, what a gig. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't be more fortunate in the way I've always summarized things was I got to live my dream of my life for 18 years. And then my dream ended and I fell into this. It just, it seriously couldn't, couldn't be any better. Well, and you get to share time with Pierre Lebrun too. So, and that's, and for me, that's been <laughs> one of the highlights of my career. So we should, we have something well, I'm in sure common. your mom told you too, Scotty. I'm sure your mom told you too. You got to balance the good with the bad. It just, I'm thinking back, I'm thinking back to a night, Ray, Ray and I worked a Washington Rangers playoff series years ago. I don't know if you remember that, Ray. Yes. But uh, we had uh, we had a fun night where we, I hadn't talked to you in a long time for some reason, and uh, <laughs> we uh, we caught up that night. It was fun. Well, what what I do know from you characters is there are certain nights to stay away from you guys. <laughs> I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> and there and so that just that a little bit of that comes with learn. What do they you know you learn the ropes a little bit. And you're like, oh oh. There's no game tomorrow. This is not a night to be around those guys. If there's a karaoke machine, there is no time to be near them. <laughs> well, that sounds that sounds like the perfect way to end this segment then of Two Men Advantage and get Ray Ferraro back out to decorating his home. And uh, Pierre Lebrun and I will take a short break and come back with the second segment with Brian McClellan. GM of the Washington Capitals, but Ray, it's been a treat. And um, as you know, as we talked before we started to uh, to tape the segment, both Pierre and I are, are at your disposal. If you uh, if you ever come up short and need a couple of gas bags to fill up space on your podcast as well, so <laughs> thanks for no, no, that's a. I was going to say, do you ever have? There'll be no Dallas Cowboys, Pierre. There'll be no Dallas Cowboys. Oh now. baby, I got my jersey ready for Thursday. I was going to see if you yeah, ever have funny, not. Didn't, yeah, I, hey, Scotty, we never saw any pictures of the cowboy jersey in the first few weeks. Now, all of a sudden, he's got <laughs> the go. again. We, 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 my team has a shot at the NFC least. It's, uh, it's a dream come true. Very good. All right. Hey, whatever you got to categorize it at, Pierre. Good luck to your boys. <laughs> That's it. Well, Ray, thanks for uh, thanks for dropping by. It's been a real treat, and then hopefully we can do it again. And uh, Pierre, don't go away. But uh, thanks again, Ray. It's been uh, it's been fun. Awesome, guys. Anytime, and uh, look forward to seeing you at a rink somewhere. Okay. Very good. See you, Ray. Awesome. Awesome, guys. You guys have a good day, and we'll uh, we'll run into you somewhere, eh? Yeah, okay, thanks Ray, for next, doing this, Ray. Uh, next yeah. beer's on me. All right, buddy. Thanks, man. Yeah. Okay, see thanks you. Again. Travel safe. Bye-bye. Yeah. All right, everybody. As promised, we're back for the second segment, Two Man Advantage, the podcast. And with all due respect to Ray Ferraro, we've now elevated the intellect and the professionalism, if I may say this, of the podcast by having Brian McClellan, GM of the Defending Stanley Cup champion Washington Capitals join us. Pierre, I, I don't know how you managed to to wrangle this, but this is a big deal to have Brian on because he's a pretty busy guy. So good for you for, for lining this up. Well, I guess, uh, I guess we owe Brian dinner at some point. That's, that's the bottom line. You know, I mean, uh, <laughs> not, no one's time is, uh, no one's time is free, but it is amazing to have Brian on and, uh, 
You know, I, I have a question right off the hop, Brian, which is, and you have to be honest because this is our podcast and no one lies on our podcast. So, <laughs> but I'm wondering how often you've caught yourself staring at that cup banner in the rink in the middle of a game and saying, <laughs> and saying, holy shit, that really did happen. And, and just what an amazing feeling that must be every time you look at it. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, um, you know, a couple of things you do find, you know, the, certain things come back to you and it, it seems a little surreal because it happens so fast. And I mean, the summer just blew by the end of the year blew by and, and you don't, you don't really take a lot of time to reflect on things, but the banner is one thing that you look at. The ring is another thing, you know, you take a look at every once in a while just to yeah, verify that we want it. Um, but it is, it's, it's, it's been fun and it's been, uh, you know, challenging to get back on track here at the beginning of the year to try and do it again. Yeah. It's, well, Brian, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to, you know, where the caps are at now and what, what your impressions have been through the first quarter of the, of this season. But I'm also curious about you. You and I talked a couple of times during the off season about, you know, what you were doing and your day with the cup and, and can you remind us what you did? I think you had a, uh, it was a boys and girls club and what, what was yeah, that day right. like for you? Yeah. What was it like? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I was fortunate. We got to have it tonight. Uh, it came in the evening before the day with the cup. So, you know, our family, we had a family dinner uh, with kids and grandkids and we took some pictures and did that kind of stuff. Uh, then the next morning we went to a special needs group in, uh, in Minneapolis and they have a group that they're you know, special kids that play hockey and follow hockey and are, are, are big fans. It's not a big group, but it was pretty intimate and uh, it was a lot of, touching moments to see these kids with the cup and, and uh, for them to have some time to spend with it and take a picture with it. And then we took it to the uh, inner city uh, kids of Minneapolis. Um, uh, they have a park there in inner city that uh, we just put the cup out and had people come around and take pictures and enjoy it. So it was uh, it was a full day and it was a fun day and it's fun to watch people react to the cup. Yeah. Well, Brian, well, Brian, I was going to say, Brian, I'm glad you had, you know, that day and a half with the cup, because I, I always joke that the only person that does enjoy the summer of winning the cup is the GM because, because the, <laughs> the summer, the summer is so short and there's so much work to do. And I, 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 you know, I always think back to 2015 when the Blackhawks won the cup and being on the ice and, and seeing Stan Bowman, you know, hugging Brandon sod. And then about nine days later trading him. Uh, <laughs> and I, and because you had to, and and you know, I always, you know, the the cap and the reality of the system. Now, interestingly enough, for you, certainly it was all about John Carlson, for the most part, uh, and that was, right. you know, and that was pretty urgent a situation given that he was UFA. But at least, you know, you certainly didn't have to deconstruct your roster like a lot of Cup champions do. I mean, that, that that's the flip side to it, right? Right. I mean, um, you know, Carlson, it was. You know, we had to, you know, do some transactions to try and create some room so we could afford John. And then, uh, you know, we also wanted to bring Kempney back, too, because those two played so well together down the stretch and throughout the playoffs. So, um, you know, it was, it, um, you know, the Orpic trade um, helped us helped us out to create some room. And uh, fortunately, we were able to get both those guys signed. When, when you look at, 
at the off season. Uh, and so the, the, the one follow-up question I wanted to ask is how many times during the summer did you pull a t-shirt over your head and drink a beer? Because I think I saw some <laughs> of your players do that. So I think that's yeah. one part of it. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I'm a little too old to be doing that. <laughs> um, you know, maybe back in college we did the equivalent of that, but, um, no, we didn't. It was kind of fun to watch our guys have fun with it, though. And, and um, you know, I was a little concerned for a little bit what was going on, but it seemed the reaction was, you know, <laughs> they've earned it and they deserve to have some fun. And and I think the, appropriately they ended it at the right time. So uh, so it was good. It was, a, it was a lot of fun to watch the guys enjoy it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's. I was just going to say it's it's a good way to segue into something you mentioned off the the top is you and and every Stanley Cup champion, regardless of, of what they do in the off season and whether they roll around in fountains or not, it, it's always a challenge to 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 come back in October or in training camp in mid September and 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 gear up after going the distance and winning a Stanley Cup. And you know, as we're sitting here, you're 20 games in and it's you're 10, seven and three, you're plus one goal differential. And I wonder if you when you sort of looked at what the first quarter of the season might be like, whether it's been way different than you imagined or whether you thought these were some of the ups and downs that you would have to go through as defending champions or what, what is your take on, on where the caps are at 20 games into defending the cup? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the big concern coming in was, you know, pretty much we returning the same lineup. It was, you know, how do, how do, how does, how's our team going to react emotionally? You know, how is it, uh, you know, how are we going to start the season out? I mean, it's, it's tough when you're playing games at that high a level uh, of compete and emotion. And then, you know, you have a short off season and a comeback and then start doing it again at the beginning of the year with, uh, you know, you're, you're looking down an 82 game schedule and you got to do it all over again. I think it's hard to get yourself mentally and emotionally engaged in it. Um, um, I think our training camp, we came in and, and, and people were in a good frame of mind, a lot better than I thought. Um, you know, I think the performance on the ice has probably been uneven. Uh, we've had periods where we've played at a, a good level. Um, and then we've had periods where we've been flat. And, uh, and I think as we've gone on here the last, probably this road trip, the last four games, I think uh, I've noticed um, you know, a higher level of play, um, you know, we're playing better defensively. We're playing better as a group. Um, it seems to be coming around to close to the level that we were at last year. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Brian, uh, um, if you guys play Montreal every night, Alex Ovechkin would break Wayne Gretzky's single season goal scoring record. I can assure you that, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Uh, I was, I was working that game in studio last night at TSN and, uh, Never bore a boring game against the Habs, it seems, and uh, it was pretty special seeing the, the, you know, the sort of the duel between Carey Price and, and Alex. Um, but uh, what I wanted to get to uh, was your goaltending and, and Phoenix Copley, who I thought was was certainly coming on and had a terrific road trip for you when Braden Holtby couldn't go, uh, but obviously he was pulled in that Montreal game. How, how do you see that playing out? I mean, it, you know, obviously last year you had. Uh, an embarrassment of riches and gold between Brayden Holtby and Philip Grubauer, right. and now the big skates to fill, obviously, with uh, for Phoenix this year. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think uh, Phoenix has done a great job with it. Obviously, he hasn't had a whole lot of experience. Um, I think we knew we might have been pushing it a little bit last night, but we weren't sure on uh, Hopi because he'd been off the ice for a few days. Mm-hmm. Um, but Phoenix has uh, handled all the challenges that we've given him. I mean, he's played well for us. I mean, I think that the important thing for us that he continues to get better, he continues to improve um, because he hasn't played in the NHL. You know, this is his first taste of it. Um, and so we've liked what we've seen and, um, he brings a high compete level. Um, and he's done a great job here at the beginning of the year when we've needed him. It, Brian, the uh, Pierre obviously was, was correct as he always is, frankly, uh, in identifying John Carlson as, you know, sort of the big moment for you in terms of the, your roster, your on ice roster getting ready for this season. But you also are in a different position because you have a rookie head coach who is also the head coach of the defending Stanley Cup championship team and in, in Todd Reardon, who took the place of Barry Trotz, who departed and is just across the way in the Metropolitan Division with the New York Islanders. And I wonder if that has, what that has been like for you uh, in terms of your relationship with Todd and, you know, do you, have you had more interaction with him? Do you approach your relationship with him differently than you would have when you first brought Barry Trotz in, given that Barry was a, a veteran head coach for, with years of experience in Nashville. Um, but the fact that this is Todd's first head coaching gig, do you approach it differently? And what's, what, have, what has that been like for you as, um, as you've gone through the first quarter of the season? Yeah, it's different. I mean, Barry, Barry's an experienced guy and, and, uh, you know, he's, he's an older, he's more, more my age than Todd is. Um, you know, we kind of see similar things in, in life and in hockey, um, being from that era. Um, so it, the conversations are a little different and, and I, I think Barry, you know, as a manager, you're given Barry as much latitude as you, as you can because because of his experience, because of how he goes about things, and, and you try and support him um, as much as you can. Um, Todd is is different, and it's his first time through. Um, I think he's learning, you know, that there's additional responsibilities. There's, there's things he has to manage that he hasn't been exposed to before. You know, he has uh, media duties. He has, you know, not just defensemen to take care of. He needs to, you know, communicate and interact with the whole team. Uh, he needs to learn how to delegate uh, responsibilities to, you know, we have a new defense coach now. Um, you know, Scott Murray's on his own as the goaltending coach. Um, you know, he's got to develop chemistry with Scott Arneal. I think the coaching groups are, are a team in themselves where they have to develop chemistry. They have to learn how to work together. They have to learn how to interact with each other. Um, you know, and our, our group this year is slightly new and they're trying to figure it out. And, uh, so far it seems to be working. Uh, Brian, I wonder if you, you guys can draw guidance slash motivation from quite a big rival in Pittsburgh, but the fact that they did defend their championship two years ago at a time when no one had seen it in so long and certainly never before in the cap era. The, the, is it nice to have tangible proof that it, it just happened and that 
you know, no one on your team should use it as an excuse, you know, that maybe you're tired or maybe it's hard to get up again this year. But the fact is a team that, you know, well did it. And so why not you guys? Yeah, no, I think that's the attitude. Uh, I think everybody in our organization is, that's the goal um, to get us back to that point. Uh, I think it was a huge learning experience for veteran guys, for young guys last year, for coaches, for management, for ownership. Uh, I, I think everybody learned a lot along the way. And I think there's no reason that, you know, we're not going to be in the hunt here come playoffs again this year for it. And, um, and I think the experience, I mean, Pittsburgh's experience doing it the year before, um, you know, paid off. I mean, they got through some tough, it looked like tougher, you know, challenges the second time through than the first time through. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I think I, our mindset is, uh, we think we can get it done. Yeah. I, I, I- Brian, I just want to switch gears a little bit here before we uh, we let you off the hook. Um, but obviously, the, the the news of the day and the news of the last couple of weeks um, has been the, um, the the rash, if I can use that term, a rash of coaching changes uh, focused in the Western Conference. So um, you're at a bit of a distance from it. But I wonder, as a as a GM, and when you look at what's happened over the last month or so, uh, do you do you have a do you have a take on it? Is there, do you, do you have a sense of maybe why after going the entire regular season a year ago until, well, until the night, the Rangers were actually done after their 82nd game before there was one single coaching change. We've now had four and uh, I read Pierre's story. Now I think it's three weeks, Pierre. Is that right? Or whatever, yes, whatever the number is, so. 17 yeah. days. Do you, is there, you know, is that just the pendulum swinging or what's your, what's your take on, on maybe why we've seen, <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, I mean, there's, the league is, is, um, is pretty close. Um, you know, any given night, I think, uh, obviously teams can beat other teams. And I, and I think teams have expectations now that, you know, you, you, you got to make the playoffs, you, you know, you want to be competitive. And a lot of teams think they're one of the better teams. Like, I think you're seeing experienced teams that have had success in the past that expect success in the future reacting to things aren't quite going their way. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to win. It's, it's competitive and, and little changes in your lineup. Uh, I mean, you see teams now that have, um, that are successful that you might not have anticipated being successful at the beginning of the year. You know, they had a player here and a player there and it makes a huge difference in your lineup. Um, and the same goes the other way where you lose a player and, you know, it has a huge impact or effect on your team. Um, so I think it's just the pressures of winning and the expectations of winning that end up creating these coaching changes. And just one last question, Brian, and thanks again for taking time here, but we, we didn't ask you about Tom Wilson and I think it's important to touch on that quickly here because it, it was a day of the gems meeting here in Toronto last week when you, addressed a bunch of us right after the meeting because it was the same day his suspension got reduced and uh, a couple of games too late I might we, we might add but uh, for for the purposes of the Washington Capitals but uh, I mean you, you had a lot of interesting things to say that day and, and certainly the about the process itself but also I mean you know we've seen Tom come back now and play a number of games and I thought again last night against Montreal he played with a real edge um, are you confident he can just find his own again and 
but perhaps without, you know, getting in trouble. Um, and, and any concerns of him, you know, going too far the other way and not being, you know, the kind of player that you need to play with an edge. Yeah, no, I have no concerns. I have faith in him. I think, you know, I mean, it's been an educational process for him, me, our organization, and the players on our team. I think uh, there's some, you know, evaluations that are going on. And I mean, it's making it difficult for players that want to be physical. I mean, you have to adjust to the way they're evaluating hits. I think, you know, Mm -hmm. Tom's been a, a high volume hitter. And, you know, he hits with a lot of force. Uh, I think, you know, for him, he's going to have to, you know, certain hits, the risk of certain hits, the way they evaluate them um, are just not worth it. You know, I like the back, uh, back pressure hits. I mean, right. if your angle's not perfect or if a guy changes his body position, you know, you go through a shoulder, you hit a head. I mean, it's just not worth the risk of, of uh, being evaluated as a, as a head hit and being suspended. You might. So, I, I mean, we're encouraging him to turn those down. Just don't bother doing them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you know, you got to be careful with guys that um, uh, turn their back to you or, you know, put their head down going across the ice. I mean, you can't take the risk of, you know, they're going to, they're going to classify that as a suspension hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you really have to be aware of how you're hitting and the ones that are real risky as far as the way they're being evaluated. And I think Tom's well aware of it now. I mean, you watch last night, he played physical, but he didn't play. He wasn't, you know, looking for big hits. Uh, the hits weren't as forceful as some of them in the past. Um, mm-hmm. And he played a really good game, you know. I mean, I thought he was outstanding last night. Mm-hmm. Brian, if I can just before we let you go, and because I almost always have the last word on the podcast, so it's typical. It's, this will typical. follow the pattern, <laughs> typical of me. But so, will you? Given, I mean, certainly given the you know the his importance, Tom Wilson's importance to to your club is obvious in in the contract that he signed in the off season. And I wonder if you do you have a plan then to make sure that 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 whether it's you or Todd or some, the, someone on the coaching staff, but do you sort of have a plan to say, okay, let's sit down every two or three games and just, whether it's going over tape or just having a conversation and a cup of coffee or whatever to say, where, where are we at with this? Or can, can you do that? I mean, maybe you can't do it, you know, that kind of thing with one specific player, but he's, he, I don't think it's overstating it. He's a critically important piece to you if you are going to get back to where you want to get to, and certainly was hugely important to your cup win. How, do you do things differently to make sure as much as possible that, that he stays on the right side of the line? Yeah, I mean, the right side of the line, I mean, uh, to be honest, I have trouble defining that line. I mean, right. You know, I've sat in on all these meetings and the hearings and um, the way one guy perceives it is a lot different than another guy perceives it. And, you know, what, how hits are being evaluated. I mean, we just have two guys out with concussions, you know, Oshie and Kuznetsov. Uh, How are those hits evaluated? Uh, You know, I would have a disagreement on how both of those were evaluated and how I looked at past hits that they've used as comparables. Um, So it's just not as simple as we're sitting down and going, 
you can't do this, you can't do that. I mean, he's well aware of, um, you know, the wording and how some of those are evaluated. So it's, it's, it's a fuzzy line for players, for managers on, you know, what, what's legal, what's not legal. Right. Like, I mean, if you take the Oshi hit um, in Winnipeg the other night, how is that different than the one in Florida, Vancouver? Yeah, that's uh, that. I mean, that's certainly that. That was a debate for sure. Yeah, I mean, that, that's what people were wondering for that reason. I mean, at the very least, it's 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 interference, and then you got the slam, right? I mean, right. And I mean, he's out with a concussion, so. I mean, how do I, as a manager, go to Oshi and he says, well, how, what's going on? And how do I communicate what I see and what, you know, that other hit, the Vancouver hit was like? I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just not all black and white for Tom either, you know? Yeah. I mean, and the I, only I, thing I, I can encourage Tom is you've you got to be careful because they're watching. And, you know, if there's, a margin of error is going to be slim for him. So if someone's turning their back to you, just turn it down. If you're coming backside pressure, you know, be very careful with any contact. I mean, those are the things we communicate to Tom about. Right. And, 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 and I think what's happening too, and, and Brian, you, you have the opportunity as one of the gatekeepers to be in those gym meetings, especially the one in March. I mean, the one we just had in November is kind of a quick tee up, but I mean, the one you guys do in March where it's three days of meetings and, exchanging ideas that's where to me i I mean i I would i would pay to be inside that room just to i mean the game just keeps evolving and changing and i feel like at times there's a better grasp of of that line than than there is at other times because it is evolving and and the the fact of the matter is and i don't care i'll be blue in the face until someone finds a way to to change my mind we are, in fact, heading towards less and less hitting in the game. And, and because of that, the line keeps shifting, in my mind. And I think that's why it's hard right. to know. You know, I mean, that, that's what I see. Right. I, I, and I agree. And I think, I mean, the question is, how do you communicate with Tom? I mean, you just, you keep reviewing the decisions, you know, and, you know, uh, people are going to have different opinions on those decisions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's up for us to learn as an organization and, and, and try and educate ourselves as best as we can. But in the end, it becomes a perception. I mean, how do you see it versus how I see it, you know, and you know, what was the precedent before that? And does this fall into the same precedent as that? Um, which is all gray area in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah, that's fascinating. Good stuff. All right, Cause, cause, I Brian? Mean, if you could tell me the subtle differences between the Oshi hit and the Matheson hit, you know, uh, you know, the Kuznetsov hit too. I mean, he didn't have the puck and he got hit in the head and they're both out. So it's, right. it's, it's, it's frustrating. Now, now do you, uh, I mean, I know sometimes uh, maybe you don't want to answer this on our podcast, but sometimes player safety will reach out to explain that to the GM whose player is injured, but sometimes they don't. So, I mean, is that. Is yeah, of, I know. I've talked to George uh, probably too much over the past year. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I try and educate myself the way they're seeing them. And I mean, I read the rules. I've been in the hearings. It, it's, I mean, sometimes people just see it differently. Mm-hmm. No question about it. 
Good stuff. Well, Brian, this has been terrific. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to come and hang out with Pierre and I. And uh, let's let's do it again sometime. That's a, it, it's yeah. Uh, it, yeah, was was a ton of fun. So thank you for <laughs> for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I'm, I look forward to that dinner. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, 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 it'll be uh, it, it'll be on me. So uh, no problem. <laughs> I know, baby. Yeah, yeah. Wait, now you're making me sound cheap. I, I'll chip well. in. There's got to be a good, got to be a good fast food place uh, around the rink in Washington. We'll find yeah, something. Right, Don't right. worry. Yeah, I'm exactly. in for half. All right. Anyway, thanks very much, Brian. Okay, thank okay. you guys. Take care. See you later. Bye. All right. Yeah, I gave you credit, Pierre, and at the start of uh, of that segment. But uh, yeah, it's, it was. I, I always enjoy talking to uh, to Brian because he's he's just really smart and he's very honest. And um, you and I both saw Brian after the Capitals had lost to Pittsburgh in the second round two years ago as the Penguins were on their way to a second straight Stanley Cup. Do you remember this? We were in uh, Buffalo at the um, at the, oh, um, the combine, yeah. At the combine in Buffalo, yeah. and that was man, that was a hard. That was hard. He was still reeling from having lost for the second straight year to 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 Pittsburgh. Remember the three of us uh, having a drink and and sort of, and it was like you know he he didn't know what else to do basically because that was a really good Caps team and they still couldn't get over the hump and and of course they did in a season when. A lot of people had written them off, and they didn't mm-hmm. play very well for the first third of the season. So it's funny how these things work out. Yeah, there are, there are a few cup championships, championships I remember covering where the universal feeling was good for them, that it was that strong, that so many different people around hockey were happy for the Caps to finally win after you know all the playoff heartaches. And, uh, you know, and Brian's certainly at the heart of that. And, you know... One of the things I like when I when we talk hockey with Brian McClellan is that I, I think there's just such a an honest vibe to him about the way he sees things, and it, which goes back to your point is that you know I remember running into him uh, at the Bell Center in preseason in September 2017, and, uh, and wrote a piece for the Athletic about it, but just how honest he was about not quite knowing where how you know whether they, they you know because they had so many roster changes and uh, another playoff heartbreak whether they were still a contender or whether they were going to need some time to rebuild their contender status and just him openly saying i just don't know what we have here you know yeah. it's just a lot of gms just wouldn't sort of take the veil down maybe at that point right and and and, and admit that but you know, he did admit it, and, and which makes finally winning the cup all that sweeter for him, I'm sure, because of that uncertainty. And yeah. uh, and certainly justifies a lot of the moves that he made in that summer of 2017. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to let you go, but uh, I, what, are your, uh, what are your Thanksgiving plans, my friend? Uh, do they, they involve some football, or what's, what's, what do you got on tap? Well, uh, I mean, uh, if you want me to go in a time machine to early October, <laughs> that's when I had Thanksgiving. But yeah, I know, I know. You mean, you mean the I mean American real Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Yeah, I mean, no, I'll be, uh, <laughs> I've got a reservation all set for a dozen or so of my pals. And, uh, you know, I'll be cheering on North America's team, the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> All right, brother. You know I always like you to let uh, to let you get in a Dallas Cowboys word. So uh, that sounds good. I hope you have a terrific Thanksgiving. 
it's a it's a universal Thanksgiving when you're a football fan. So I hope you have a great Thanksgiving, and um, we'll uh, we'll have to see how many coaches bite the dust between now and next week when we do our uh, when we reconvene for two man advantage the podcast. So yeah, geez, I, I sure hope not. But uh, now, are you you have a hockey tournament with uh, with your son Connell, or is it? Uh... Or is it Florida time for you? For we're 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 in our traditional uh, Florida Thanksgiving mode. So nice. we, did, we did some early hockey and then a trip down, and uh, yeah. So I'll be uh, I'll be watching along with you, my friend, and uh, looking forward to getting back at Two Man Advantage uh, next week. So right have a on, good brother. One. All, All the right, best, man. bud. Yeah, take care.